All right, welcome everyone to episode one of the Products from Scratch podcast. That's me, Ashwin, and Mike is on the other line. We're two engineers, and I have a day job, and Mike has quit his job, and we're both trying to build technical products from scratch. So this is episode one, but the last week's episode was the first one, episode zero, because we're both programmers. And uh, we, in this podcast go through and try to describe our process of creating these products as we do it. So this is a real-time sort of journey. We'll do something one week and promise to do something for the next week and recap what we've done so far. So last week we were talking about, in general, what kind of problems we wanted to solve. And I said, the problem I really wanted to solve was building Mandarin language learning software because I really like to learn languages. And Mike, what is the problem you were trying to solve? So I was trying to solve the problem where engineers face a very set, common set of frustrations every week and across a bunch of people that I was, was talking to and myself included, we were just facing the same problems over and over again. And that was at your work as a software engineer, is that right? Yes. Right. So Mike has something to help engineers solve their frustrations and I'm building language learning software. And so last week we made some promises about the first steps that we would take in building our product. So let's recap those right now. So Mike, can you tell me what it is that you promised that you would do in the effort of building this product last week? Last week, the big one was defining the problem space that I was really passionate about. And that's the one that I kind of talked to you just now, which is helping engineers manage their frustrations. And so the thing that I promised last week is to dive more deeply into who this engineer is, what persona, what are their characteristics. So for this week, I'm going to kind of talk about, you know, who this engineer actually is. That's cool. So you wanted to find out what kind of person that was. So I assume you started to define your character model a bit more. And I remember that you had already interviewed a whole host of engineers. So who is exactly this character that you've culled from your notes? So this person tends to be a really driven software engineer. They are excited about learning. Whatever project is at hand, they can always find you know, themselves the drive to accomplish their tasks. They generally aren't the ones that try to get promoted really quickly or climb the ranks of management really quickly. And they also tend to be more aligned with the either team goals or the company goals. And that's what motivates them to do great work. So you're saying that they're not doing this work for themselves, they're doing it more for some higher calling, is that right? I think it's more of, they're not necessarily the ones to play the political game at a larger company. They're much, much happier just working in sync with project goals versus working through people issues, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But if they're not interested in playing politics and stuff, why is it that they get frustrated? So I think, and this is still unfolding, but oftentimes the engineer, we like to kind of be appreciated from our work. We like to work really hard. We like to do whatever it takes to help our team succeed. But then we also expect that the people around us, whether it be management, other team members, or members of other teams, to recognize and call us out and reward us for that. And that's not always the case, which we see oftentimes at big companies. Yeah, that sounds pretty frustrating. I've probably experienced that one or two times in my life. So in these conversations with all the engineers, did you find any patterns of sort of 
you know, that's one example of like other similar frustrations. Yeah. So last week I started talking about one that plagued a lot of engineers as they move into a tech lead role. I went through about 16 frustrations, most of them that had been felt by multiple engineers. And I was really trying to rewrite a lot of these to put myself back in those shoes and try to explain to someone who didn't really know my situation and explain how the frustration came about and what the context was. And it's actually really, really hard because you realize you start talking about specific people, the actual problem. You start to talk about the responsibilities that you're supposed to have, the responsibilities that others perceive in you. And getting that all on paper took quite a bit of time and finding patterns has been pretty challenging. I know I spent some time trying to categorize them into types, stuff like around respect, responsibilities, autonomy. But then I realized where if you were to show a user or an engineer like, hey, what's your frustration? Is it something to do with respect or responsibilities? That actually would be really hard to kind of begin that interaction and getting them to share more about that frustration. And so now I'm trying to tackle this from the characteristics of basic human emotions. How are you actually feeling as a result of this frustration? For example, if you've been passed over multiple times for a manager role or a tech lead role, you might just come out and say that you're pissed. And that's a very, very different emotion from when you're just moving into a tech lead role and you're really overburdened with so much stuff that's hitting you. You would say you're overstretched. If you're new to a role and you're unsure of kind of what you're doing, you wouldn't be either pissed or overstretched, but you might just feel completely lost. And this is where I'm starting to see are all these types of frustrations, do they boil down into these very basic human emotions? That's interesting. So you're taking real instances from work of somebody being frustrated and then distilling it into a single emotion like I feel lost or I feel underappreciated and you're sort of bucketing engineers' problems in this way. Is that right? That's correct. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like it was pretty successful. Yeah, so... You've got a full-time job. Last week, you said you could spend a lot of time. I think it was around 18 hours on this. How's that going? Yeah, so I found out that that was a gross overestimation of (laughs) the amount of time that I could spend. I mean, 18 hours, I think, is something that I calculated as a maximum amount of time. But, you know, I forgot to account efficiency into the equation and efficiency (laughs) in working is definitely not 100%. It's more like 50%, honestly. So if I said last week, 18 hours a week is a good amount of time. I really think I only work on this thing probably nine to 10 hours a week. Are you doing this like before you get to work or are you doing it post work or post workout or before sleeping? Like how do you manage your schedule? I typically wake up, I go to work, And I usually exercise either during my lunch break or right after work. And then after that, and I come home and I start to eat dinner, then I will start to work on it after that. So usually at night. Yeah, my girlfriend is not with me right now. When she was with me, then I would have to adjust that slightly because in the evenings, it would be more about spending time with her. And so I would work in the morning before I went to work. So either one of those times is fine. Got it. And I know you also promised that you'd find three people who would buy your product and figure out why they buy your product. How's that going? I'm pretty happy with the results. So, I mean, in the last episode, I said I've tried to write Mandarin language learning software before, and I knew it was a good idea to ask people, you know, what is it that they wanted in Mandarin language learning software? But one of my biggest mistakes was that 
I was asking the wrong crowd of people. So typically I would ask my friends and, you know, say, Hey, do you know anybody who's interested in learning Mandarin? And they would say, yeah. And they would give me their email addresses and I'd follow up with them and I'd ask them. And there were typically people who kind of thought, yeah, learning Mandarin would be cool. But like, they didn't really have the real desire to learn the language. Like somebody who puts hours into it every day or somebody who spends money on it they weren't that real focused user. So I think I, you know, in those interviews, I sort of wasted my time, but this time I was much more focused. So I went to meetup.com. I found a Chinese language meetup that I'm a part of. I emailed every single person, you know, I emailed so many of them that I got blocked by the spam filter. And eventually (laughs) (laughs) I got some responses. So of about 40 people I emailed, about five people even responded. So it's a pretty low hit rate. You know, yeah, it's quite low, actually. It's, you know, well, only like 12% or something like that. And of those people who responded that they would be willing to meet, you know, a couple of them dropped out. But luckily, I got the three that I promised, which is it's a little bit curious. I mean, it seems like I engineered the thing so that I would get exactly the number of people that, <laughs> that you I promised. promised. But yeah, no, yeah that's, that's I awesome. really, I lucked out for sure. <laughs> but yeah, so I basically, you know, I would go out with them, you know, go to coffee with them. I just asked them you know, hey, would you be willing to give me some advice on uh, the way that you learn Mandarin? And if I framed it in the way of asking somebody for advice, then it didn't come off as salesy. And I mean, it's true. I actually wanted their advice and I didn't want to sell them anything. But that's, you know, one tip to like actually get a cold introduction to actually being able to talk to somebody. So, yeah. What does cold mean? So cold would be somebody that you don't know personally or who is not a friend of a friend. It's just literally a random person that you emailed. Okay. And so if you were to say a warm connection, that'd be someone uh, like a reference you get from a friend. Is that right? Right. And what I found empirically is that, I mean, of course, this is obvious, but you know, if you get a warm introduction, your chances of actually meeting with that person, provided that you work around their schedule and you do everything logistically correct, is almost 100%. I mean, if you have a good friend who recommends somebody, usually they'll be more than happy to talk to you because, you know, that's their reputation on the line. You know, in contrast, like I said, you know, the cold email hit rate is like something like 10%. It's really low. So you have to be a little bit smarter about the way you write emails and stuff like that. Got it. So of these three members, can you just give me an example of one of these members? Sure. So I met this guy, let me, I'll just call him Jim. And um, he had lived in China for many years, um, about a decade. And he worked in engineering and um, yeah, he lived in Beijing and he really wanted to learn how to speak Chinese fluently. And I mean, that's the goal of anybody really who wants to learn Mandarin, but he wanted to do it, you know, for work because he really needed it for work. And he also wanted to do it to because you know he wanted to feel proud that he could speak this language that was supposedly very difficult and uh apparently in China you know if you're a foreigner and you can actually speak good mandarin people are just blown away and so he really liked that feeling that he got when you know a chinese native was like taken aback by how good his mandarin was yeah so he you know he tried all kinds of things he tried flashcards reading you know he's not terribly technically savvy so he hasn't tried a lot of apps but he has definitely put in the hours. He's tried tutoring. Everything that you can think of that doesn't involve a computer, he's done that. 
One thing you actually mentioned in there that you called out is that emotion of surprise in that he wanted to have his audience kind of respect his Mandarin when he was speaking Mandarin. That's actually very similar to what I was talking about with frustration coming down with that base sense of emotion. Are there other examples of these kinds of emotions that you kind of looked for when you were in these interviews? Yeah, that's good that you pointed it out. It's actually, it's the key thing that I would hope anybody who does any of these you know, character interviews tries to get out of it. So there are a lot of things where you can ask people, how did you learn this? And what are the, you know, logistics of the way that you went around doing this? But in the end, like when you want to sell a product to somebody, you are selling to their emotions. So they have some sort of emotional problem that causes them the distress. For example, like I feel ashamed because I cannot speak Mandarin in front of my coworkers. That's an emotion that, you know, makes somebody want to fix it. And that's the emotion that you're selling to. So trying to like ask these people, what is it in their lives that's bothering them because they cannot learn Mandarin as opposed to, you know, just asking questions like, how did you learn Mandarin, et cetera. So I tried to focus on the emotional response and it's really insightful. By the way, like, you know, once you get the emotions from interviews like this, you can use those directly in your copywriting. When you're selling something to somebody, you can be like, are you ashamed of not being able to speak Mandarin? That's something that <laughs> right. it's, it's, yeah, it's a really good technique. But anyway, so yeah. So a couple of examples, you know, when I, I said like Jim, for example, was, you know, he wanted to feel really proud when somebody saw that he was a good Mandarin speaker. I talked to another guy who was a businessman and uh, he said, you know, yeah, I could hire an interpreter when I went to China, but the way that a Chinese businessman looks at you when you cannot speak Chinese, like devalues your position so much that you almost become sort of somebody on the side, like somebody not worthy of the respect of business. So the emotion there would be, you know, I want to feel important. I want to feel taken seriously in my negotiations with Chinese people. So I want to learn Mandarin and not just hire an interpreter. Right. Another person that I talked to was like, he married a Chinese woman and he wants to be able to speak to the family and they don't speak any English. So for him, it's like, it's showing respect to his wife. And it's the feeling that, you know, he has put in the time and, and he values the relationship so much and she feels a lot better. So that's another emotion you can play off of. Are you going to keep trying to find these people either via meetup or uh, your friends uh, now that you've got a couple character personals going on? Yeah, for sure. I've heard that it's pretty good to keep doing these things even as you're building the product, not just, you know, take your sample size of three and then try to build something around it. So, you know, one really good thing to do in these interviews is at the end, always ask them if they know somebody else who's also doing the thing that you want and then follow up with them. Cause like I said, you know, warm referrals, the hit rate is super high. So if I get one person from each other person, then that's good enough for me. So definitely keep asking people and you know, you can't really go wrong with more data and it costs you almost nothing. It costs you maybe 30 minutes of your time and it's, it's really insightful. So yes, I would definitely keep doing it. Cool. So last week, in addition to our recap, we also promised that we would talk about our approaches to developing products, things that we've read, for example, in books, you know, The Lean Startup, there's uh, Paul Graham's writings, there is the 37 Signals blog, all kinds of stuff people have written about, you know, how to build a product. So I want to ask you about that, Mike. But first, let me just ask you sort of logistically, 
I mean, last week was the first week that you and your co-founders started working full-time and you both quit your jobs. So how is that going? Yeah, so it's been going pretty good. Uh, my co-founder's name's Brian. We've been working together at LinkedIn for about a year and a half now. I first met him out in Mountain View, and when I relocated out to New York, we continued to work together on a new project. So this is the first week, the conclusion of the first week that my co-founder and I started working out of my apartment. And it's pretty bare bones right now. We really just have like some water in the fridge, a desk. I've got a whiteboard now, but uh, that's it. And we're just working every day so far. That's awesome. That sounds like uh, the Silicon Valley startup dream where you have nothing and you're working out of a warehouse. <laughs> that's great. Cool. Okay. So you're working with a co-founder. So maybe I'll ask you, how is it that you approach this product you know, as a team working with somebody else? So one of the nice things about having worked with someone uh, like Brian for some time now is we kind of understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. I really enjoy thinking about the intangibles of product, the nuances of why people do certain things. And he really is excited about building the product and laying down the engineering fundamentals from which our product will grow. And we're both engineers, so I think the way we've set it up is I'm driving the product but he's kind of challenging me every step of the way. We keep reaching out to our friends, our colleagues about the product. And he's driving the engineering. And when it gets to a point where he's laid out the fundamentals and kind of has concrete pieces of work that both of us are required for, I'm just going to dive into a section and uh, he'll basically take lead and I'll, I'll kind of follow from the engineering side. With regards to the product strategy overall, one of the things that you mentioned was the lean startup. And this is something that I actually really enjoy and I like their model of being able to test a bunch of hypotheses, things that you are guessing about how the world works or how people work. And you slowly just figure out or actually you quickly figure out which one of these actually is correct and which of these is not. To give you a concrete example, one of the, the biggest things with anything around frustrations is privacy. Will people actually share their frustrations to you, someone that they trust, or you, someone that they don't even know? And this is very, very critical for us to figure out if people will actually do this. And so this is one of the, the first things we are focusing on. Another thing that the, the Lean Startup recommends is a focus on true north metrics versus vanity metrics. This actually came up a lot in uh, at LinkedIn for me, where we would report all these great numbers of member signups and how many views or how many groups were created. And these are actually just empty vanity metrics. They don't tell you how healthy your product is or whether or not your product is actually even growing. And instead, towards the end of my tenure at LinkedIn, we started to double down on what we would consider more true north metrics, where people posting higher quality posts, maybe that metric is a function of a user uh, reading time, spending more time on articles, or what happens when a user signs up? Do they stay engaged with the site over a period of time instead of just dropping off and, and never coming back? Okay, that was an interesting explanation of which metrics you're going to consider. So... From what I remember, you know, both of you are back-end engineers. That's your specialty. But you need to have some sort of UX component to your app. So how are you going to figure that out? So I don't really know where this philosophy necessarily comes from, but basically we're just kind of stealing from what we think works, the apps that we really enjoy. For example, we're taking the sign-up flow of WhatsApp. It's a really seamless flow to, to start getting people to message each other. There's this online dating app called Coffee Meets Bagel, 
where basically once you connect with someone, they like you and you like them, you get an auto prompt that suggests a question that either of you can answer. And it makes breaking the ice really, really easy. And also Asana is a workflow app and they are very focused around to-do lists and structured content. And because a lot of our stuff is also in some type of templated form, we are borrowing heavily from their UX. Cool. So a lot of theft. (laughs) That's correct. That's the way. All right, good. Yeah, I assume I'll probably be doing a lot of that too. So yeah, that sounds good. Any other thoughts on, you know, what's working out and what's not working out for you so far in this one week? Yeah, so I think I'll just bring up two points. One is uh, working with Brian's actually been really great. He's actually a lot more disciplined than me. You know that I have a tendency to kind of ramble about product uh, at a very fuzzy level. And he's someone that will <laughs> In this immediately... this very podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That's very true. And so he's someone that'll just like interrupt me and just be like, okay, so how does that actually look on paper? And so we started sketching it out. We actually turned a lot of this into mocks and we've built a very, very ugly first version of this as an iOS app. And so it's really helpful to have kind of that type of person to work with. And the other thing is that we've set up a weekly one-on-one. Now we're both peers. We founded this company together. But one thing that has come up... Wait a second. You're not just peers. You're good friends, aren't you? Yes, that's correct. But you still set up one-on-ones with each other? Yeah. So the reason I'm doing that is, is people have just been saying, and this is from our experience doing Lexeme as well. Uh, you know, we talked about this in, uh, you know, podcast zero. Oftentimes you don't necessarily know the startup health of, uh, your, your co-founder. You could think everything's going just smooth and all of a sudden they blow up or some frustration puts them over the tipping point. And this is not just us. It did not just happen to us. This has happened to pretty much many, many companies that, you know, I'm friends with or I have friends at, and that's one thing that I'm super mindful of. And that's why I have a weekly one-on-one. And this is just a time to step away from product implementation detail. We don't talk about any of that stuff. We just talk about, hey, is it fine that we only have water in our fridge? Is it fine that I'm focusing on product right now and that I'm not actually coding? Is it fine that we'll be at your place next week? So that kind of thing to just be a zone where we can have just honest conversation with each other so that the health of our startup is monitored every single week. That's all. Yeah, that sounds like a good thing. And typically, you know, in a normal work environment, you do that with your boss, but you're working with one other person and it seems equally valid. I don't see why somebody shouldn't do that. So yeah, that's good. So let's flip this question around. Uh, What are your philosophies to building products? So I really like the... 37 signals approach. I've read some other philosophies like the lean startup, Paul Graham's essays, that kind of thing. I really like the 37 signals approach, which is don't quit your job. You know, you only spend the amount of time uh, in the week that you have left to work on it. So in my case, you know, 10 hours a week and try to focus that small amount of time that you have on really high value investments into your product. So you're supposed to say no to a lot of features and distractions or whatever you come up with. And that way, you know, you only have the really good, it's like separating the wheat from the chaff. You know, you have the wheat, the really high value stuff. So one example of that is, so there are two ways that I could have gone about creating character models that I was supposed to do this week. And one of the ways would be to go out and meet people and ask them directly about the emotions that they experience when they are learning Chinese, like the emotional reasons that they're doing it. And another way I could have done it was by 
you know, reading about these people in books or, you know, looking at competitors' marketing material and seeing like how they pitch themselves to customers and maybe trying to, you know, assemble some sort of character model on secondhand sources. And, you know, I could have just stayed in my room and done that. But like, that would not have been a high value use of my time. I mean, for me, it's not as easy to go out and talk to people. It's much easier for me to just scroll internet websites. But the value that you get from a firsthand experience and just talking to them about, you know, everything in their life is information that I can use for copywriting, you know, developing the product. It's this much more, you know, integral part of them that is worth the time. It's worth the time. And so, you know, the 10 hours that I week I have, a lot of it was spent organizing, you know, text messages from people, just getting a meeting set up. And some might say that would be a waste of time, but I thought it was the best use of my time. Do you have any other uh, thoughts regarding this fairly like simplistic, straightforward approach? No, I mean, it's sort of like Occam's razor. If you can, I have this like deep down belief, you know, if you can make something simpler, then you should do it. I mean, complexity is like, is something that becomes sort of an exponential problem. And uh, so I, I try to kill that as early as I can. And uh, yeah, I mean, artificially or, you know, even just because the way you live life, like constraining your time is a really good way to force yourself to be simple about things. And uh, yeah. Okay, so this week you analyzed all the interviews you had with frustrated engineers and sort of put them into buckets what are you planning to do for next week so that we can talk about it? So there's two big items right now. We have a very basic prototype out that I mentioned. Uh, we really need to clean this up. And uh, right now it's just several screens worth of forms. So one of my biggest things is to try to enter these frustrations, try to add the context, the feedback, the actions in the interface that we have now and, and iterate on that. And then we also found out that there's a Techstars app due next week. Techstars is an incubator that you may remember that we may have applied to when we were applying to Seedstart and Y Combinator uh, five years ago, uh, but it's due next week. And so I figure we might as well, you know, fill out an application and do the videos and uh, submit it. Cool. So when you talk about cleaning up your prototype, are you going to show that to people or is it more like you and your partner are going to clean them up? So I think right now we're still at the stage where we have enough to test ourselves so I think for this week, we're not going to even bring in the handful of engineers that will be working with us throughout the beta. How about you, Ashwin? What are you up to next week? So I have some warm leads now on other people who are learning Mandarin, and I'm going to interview them like I did this week. But I'm going to continue to try to get cold leads by... I've sort of exhausted the internet resources here in Utah, so I'm going to you know post flyers and stuff like that at the library in the university I mean, knowing full well that maybe these people won't be my customers because typically students don't pay for anything, but it might still be interesting to learn what is their fundamental motivation. So I'm going to do that. I recently read a few copywriting books, and one thing that they recommended is that you take these character models that you've gotten from your interviews and try to write copy to sell them a product that you have not even created yet. So... You know, I'm going to think about how am I going to use these emotions to like hook these people in and maybe, maybe come out with three scripts. And with those three scripts, I'll just, you know, I'll recap them next week. So I'll read you what I actually wrote. And maybe you guys can see if they sound effective or not. <laughs> and then the last thing I'll probably do is uh, go through. So I have some freelancers who have developed 
you know, some Chinese content for me, you know, written and audio, and I have to go through and clean them up a little bit, do some splicing and uh, try to get them into maybe a data structure or something like that. So I'm not really going to start programming yet, but I'm going to start laying the foundations for like data structures. So nothing that can't be changed pretty easily. That sounds good. One more question for you. Do you ever feel like you have the urge to just dive back into coding and it takes so much energy to fight that urge? (laughs) I have that, yes, all the time. I mean, the reason is because I am a software engineer and I'm really good at that. So it's my comfort zone. It's really easy for me to just, you know, open up a terminal or something, open up Vim and start coding and, you know, not really having the holistic approach that I'm doing right now, but just like start coding a product because I think it's cool. And I've done that before. (laughs) I've learned my lesson. It's a terrible way to go. So it takes a lot of inner strength to like resist and say, you know, no, maybe I should go outside and talk to people and see if this is actually a problem they're having. Yeah, completely agree with you. It's something I've learned from tough experience. So (laughs) I'm never going to make that mistake again. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So I assume you're the same way. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, and that's why it's great to have a a partner with this where when I look over his shoulder and like I see that he's got like a design out or, you know, the code that's already working in a product on his phone that we're testing. And I'm looking at what I'm doing and I'm trying to get like analyze these frustrations that are in these, this Excel document. It's kind of like, am I making the best use of my time? And for right now, at least, especially in these early stages, finding that product market fit is uh, super critical. So keep fighting that urge and I'll keep doing the same. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's sort of like as software engineers, that's something that's beaten into us. Like if you are doing something administrative, like going through Excel or like talking to contacts or talking to people, you're basically, you know, you're wasting your time. Like all that money that your company is paying for your highly paid software engineering butt (laughs) is like going completely to waste. So it's so weird for like me to do these, you know, administrative things and like feel like I'm still working. It's very difficult to quantify, but you have to sort of overcome that that fear. Cool. Yeah. Good. Okay. Awesome. It was good talking to you. So we'll talk about our recaps next week. So we'll see you all then. Take Take care. care.